0: Hope Church. With us for the first time, I'm really glad uh, you're here today, and um, want to encourage you just to make yourself at home. Uh, we try to do church here as you know, as family, and um, those who have been around for a while know that. And so, we want to continue to to love one another and to grow together in the Lord, and to understand um, His ways, as we've talked about before. Normally, you know, we teach just straight through books of the Bible because that way we don't get to skip, you know, anything difficult, and we get the full counsel um, of God uh, for our lives. Uh, we are taking a break, and we're we're doing a series on you know forgotten heroes um, of the scriptures, and this gives us a way to to really get into some of those uh, key Old Testament characters that uh, we don't often hear you know enough about or you know if you, if you grew up in, in the church um, you know some of these stories are, are certainly uh, familiar but oftentimes even in the familiar stories we kind of get the the children's Bible version of those stories and that's what's in our minds and so we need to go back and look at those more deeply and more closely and and understand the other um, you know layers of the onion if you will uh, to, to really dig in and to, to understand more of who God is and and um, what his expectations of us are And so la- two weeks ago we looked at our first forgotten hero was a Hebrew um, slave girl and we saw her great of uh, faith and how she didn't allow um, her circumstances to dictate her perspective. Um, in life and her, her relationship with God, her faith in God, and her love uh, for people. Uh, last week we looked at Jonathan, um, who gave up uh, willingly, you know, gave up his place as the rightful um, heir so that David um, would be the next king um, of Israel and how he didn't resist God's plan in that but embraced it, um, how he was create- courageous. Um, in his life and how he was, was loyal, uh, sh- truly an inspiration. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at um, a woman named Rahab uh, from the book of Joshua, uh, particularly in, in chapter 2. But before we get there, we need to establish some context to truly understand who she is and the people um, that she comes from. Because again, this is one of those um, stories in the children's Bible that you often see. Uh, You know, the the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and and God gives this, you know, victory. But kind of the reasons for that and the details surrounding that are kind of, you know, lost because there's some uncomfortable stuff in there. And in fact, in that, that story and in similar stories to that, many people who are, you know, atheists or who are, you know, against... Um, you know Jesus and, and the scriptures. You know use those stories as a place of attack, and they attack and say, you know, well, God is not just, God is not fair, God is, you know, your God is is angry and vindictive, and you know all sorts of, of accusations. And so we want to look at that on that level because even as we go through these characters, again, we don't want to just you know avoid the difficult subjects and the difficult things. We need to face those head on and have you know, good reason, uh, to, for a good understanding from God's perspective uh, of what's real and what's right and just, and to be able to defend you know, our faith when it's attacked. And so uh, we want to look into that this morning. So let's go to Lord in prayer, and then we're going to set the context before we get into this scene. We'll spend a little bit of time doing that, and then we'll see Rahab and her faith. Uh, so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege this morning to come and to look into your Word, to gain understanding and perspective. I pray that you would help us to see things as you see it, and not as we would just see with our own human eyes, as we would just see through our own cultural uh, lens. But, God, that we would see the truth of your Scripture, um, that we would see how you see it, we would apply that um, in our own culture and our own lives, and we would seek to, to love you and to follow you, obey you, Um, to do what is right in your sight. And so we ask these things, O gracious God, in your name, Jesus, we ask them. Amen. Um, So, context for the story. We have to go back to Genesis chapter 11. You'll have to turn to all these references, but I'm going to go to a few different places this morning, but I do ask that you just listen, you know, really listen in intently to what the scripture says. In Genesis chapter 11, God calls... Abraham. And it says, the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is one of those key Foundational. We come back, you know, to this scripture on a regular basis because we see God's work and God's plan here, um, and His plan to to bless um, Abraham. But in that that blessing doesn't stop with him, but that that blessing would go to all the families of the earth. This is one of the key things in our understanding of the scriptures: is that we have a God whose plan from the beginning has included, you know. All the people groups of, of the whole world, you know, we don't have to come back and change the story down the road, uh, you know, to include, you know, all the ethnicities of the world. You know, God has done that from the beginning, and that's really important um, as far as having a story, um, a God that is big enough for our world. You know, most most gods are only big enough for one ethnicity or you know one region um, of the world. Most the gods that people make up are gods that just benefit themselves. So you have to have a God that's big enough for all of his creation. Um, if you're going to have a true God. And so, in verse 5 of, of ch- chapter 11, it says, And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. And now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. Now, we have a promise here that's made to to Abraham where God says that he's going to give him this land. And you know, as you read it, just here in this this one passage, you say, well, I mean, does that seem fair? That, you know, these Canaanites live here in this land and God's just going to give you know, their land to someone else. Does that seem just? Does that seem right? You know, here's where that ethical, you know, question comes into play. Is God just? Or is he just playing favorites here, you know, with Abraham and giving him what belongs to other people? That's the accusation, all right? So now let's, I'm going to have to make a long story Really short, for our content, you know, for our time this, this morning, as best I can, but to make a long story short, Abraham's descendants would end up being slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God brings them out and tells them to drive the Canaanites out of this land that he had promised to Abraham. OK? Now Deuteronomy chapter nine tells us God's reasoning. Tells us why. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess for you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. But he does make a distinction between the sin and the wickedness of the Hebrews to the exceeding wickedness of the Canaanites and the other in their representative there of the other nations you know surrounding them as well okay but notice in that, in those few verses three times it is not because of your righteousness but it is because of their wickedness so god is judging them for their wickedness in another place he's, he, he you know the timing uh, we'll look at this later, but the timing is was not immediate for Abraham and his immediate descendants because the fullness of the wickedness of the Canaanites had not come. And in that, there's mercy. There is grace. There is opportunity to take a different path. But we say instead of that, their wickedness grows. Okay, so... The reason God gives them to take this land is judgment against the wickedness of the Canaanites and the other nations in that area. And with that, it's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. But God's promise to Abraham and why that specific land was picked was because of the wickedness of the people that were there. God didn't say, well, there's, there's a relatively, yeah, I mean, every, we're all fallen, you know, every people group is sinful, but he didn't say, well, there's a relatively good people group that I'm going to dispossess and give you their land. No, this is like exceedingly wicked people. And so what do we know about the Canaanites? Now, we know this from a combination of sources. We know this from ancient um, literature of the Near East, and we know this um, from you know, the scriptural record as well. And those, um, you know, basically... We know the scripture is true, but it's 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 good when you have outside sources that confirm what you have here. So when people are skeptics or doubters, you say, "Well, the evidence is there. It's not just in my in my Bible. There's there are outside sources as well." And so, what is this literature? What are, what are these and these archaeological discoveries? You know, what do they teach us about the Ketanites? Um Well, one thing is that. They came at a certain point in their history to, you know, hate the idea of a one true and living God. They were polytheists. They were repul- repulsed by this idea that the, you know, that Abraham, uh, you know, not just an idea but this reality that Abraham expressed that there's one true and living God. Okay, they had many gods, and we'll talk about some of the gods. That they had, and so they depicted, you know, God as we know in Hebrew Yahweh. They depicted him, you know, as a weak, coward, and they made all sorts of very vile um, stories and just disgusting things about, you know, about God. So their polytheism also created a cultural framework for every possible type of sin to be accepted in their culture. Now let's think back, because we have in the in Genesis um, some in early interaction with the Canaanite city. Now now remember, this is before their time of wickedness is filled up. This is before. You know, the descendants of Abraham are 400 years um, as slaves in Egypt. You have Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are Canaanite cities. And in that, I mean, we don't have children in the room, so I'm going to talk a little more freely this morning than I would if we had children in the room. I just want you to understand that. Um, But in that, wickedness included the gang rape of men and women. That that, and and that that's what the, the people of the city desired. The people of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have that. Um, we know from the ancient text and from the scriptural record that incest and pedophilia were accepted practices. Okay writer Clay Jones uh, well he writes like all ancient near east pantheons pantheons that's the collection of gods the Canaanite pantheon was incestuous the god El considered the father of the gods had 70 children by Asherah now if you remember if you read in the in the testament in the old testament the hebrews are instructed don't set up Asherah meaning you know, these poles in the high places okay and because this is for this You know, female goddess, and this would, you know, bring about all sorts of sexual sin, okay, with the people. But it says, so they had 70 children. From that union came Baal, and Baal's, you know, a god we often, little g god that we often see in the Old Testament uh, in terms of adversary, and his sister Annette, who Baal had sexual relations with. After Baal reported to His father, El, that Asherah, that's his mother, had tried to seduce him, El encouraged Baal to have sex with her to humiliate her, which Baal did. Baal also had a a consort with his daughter, Pidre, and none of these incestuous acts of the gods are represented pejoratively or in in a negative sense. So you have Baal, the god. Baal has sex with his mother, that goddess, and with his daughter multi-generational incest is in their gods. Okay. Now the reality of it is that their their gods mimic their culture and vice versa. It's kind of this cycle that's gonna like go down the toilet basically. And so now now think about this. Early Canaanite laws prescribed Um, death or banishment for most forms of incest, but after the 14th century BC, these penalties were reduced to no more than the payment of a fine. Okay? And so they decriminalized incest and that coincides with God's word to Abraham that the sins of those who lived there had not yet reached its full measure. Okay, so now think about this. From Sodom and Gomorrah, which got destroyed because of their wickedness, They get worse and worse. Like that wasn't the peak of their wickedness. That's like the beginning of their wickedness. So, this is, again, just the depravity of it. Bestiality was common and accepted. Worse yet, They sacrificed their own children to their false gods. Leviticus 8.21 commands, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. So Moloch was a Canaanite underworld deity. And the idol of Moloch was this upright idol with a bull's head, with outstretched arms, and in its belly had a fire. And so they would place an infant or a child up to the age of four in the arms of Moloch, that idol, with the fire going and burn the child alive. And they would play the drums and the flutes to such a volume that the people couldn't hear the screams of the children. Babies up to the age of four. That's their historical you know, record and it's a terrible thing indeed. Now I, I think here we have enough evidence to show that God was just in judging the Canaanites and the surrounding nations that also practiced these things that he, there's enough evidence to show of their wicked practices that were not you know blips on the radar of abnormal things but their way, their cultural way of life, that God was just to judge them. Now, I mean, and this is also, you know, we have that phrase, um, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Right? We have that phrase. Um, now, remember back to Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and his daughters. When they flee the city, Okay, and Lot's wife turns back because she loved the Things of Sodom and Gomorrah and she's turned into a pillar of salt you know it's a pretty you know wild thing but then what we read after that is that Lot's daughters get their father drunk and have incestuous relations with him. Where'd they learn that from? They learned that from the Canaanite culture that they were living in that they were a part of and so this is where, you know, God told them to drive them out because He said, if you don't, they're going to be a stumbling block to you. And ultimately, they didn't drive them out fully. And they did become a stumbling block to them. And, you know, you think about, um, as you, I mean, just the record, the Old Testament record is full of the negative consequences of not fully judging what God had set to judge and not fully driving the Canaanites out of that land. And so then what happens later on is that God has to use other nations like the Medes and the Persians and like the Babylonians to come and judge the Israelites because they practice many of these same wicked things. And God was very explicit, like, don't do these things. Leviticus chapter 24, you know, there's this list of, like, don't do these things. And there's all sorts of sexual things that are listed, like, don't do this, don't do the Incestuous things, bestiality, don't do this. don't Human sacrifice, don't do this. Well, why is God writing this? Because, you know, I look at it and go, I mean, should we have to say, like, don't have sex with animals? Like, I mean, is that something we even need? Like, uh, I mean, is, is that just something that, you know... You know, men. I mean, it actually says men basically don't rape animals, and women don't give yourselves to sleep with animals. Like, is that something that needs to be said? Really? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Sadly, sadly, unfortunately, that had to be explicitly commanded because that shows you when people start going on a on a path. You know you know we we believe like humans as a as a race you know the human race you know we're born in sin and we're depraved and we're we're, we're prone to sin but some are more depraved than others and because and when you exercise sin you get better at sin you get stronger at sin sin gets worse and worse and worse and what used to give some sort of gratification or satisfaction no longer does and so there has to be a next step. Like sin in by its nature is addictive. You know one of the key examples we have of that is drugs, right? Because it takes more and more to get the same ha. Well, the same thing's true with sexual sin or any time it takes more and more to get the same gratification. So when you I guess they've tried everything else what's left to try. I mean, that's how wicked it is. Now, the other problem that we have with it, I mean, some of these things do repulse us. You know, incest, bestiality, child human sacrifice, you know, most of us find those things like repulsive. But the big problem for us, and this is just a point of application for us in in our culture, is we don't hate sin like God hates sin. Like God hates sin. But we tend to excuse sin, justify sin. And one of the things that's in our hearts and minds and sometimes on our lips is, well, you know, X, Y, or Z, I mean, it's not that bad. But again, we need to remember that sin is never satisfied. You know, so that, that's the problem. You know, when we start making compromises, we say, well, you know, little lies aren't that big of a deal. You know, pornography, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. You know, and, and when you take away, I mean, this is the thing, when we take away any sort of shame from things that are wrong eventually you get to a point in a culture and society where nothing brings shame. And so the Canaanites had gotten to that point where all of these things were accepted and none of these things were shameful. So when we come to Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua says Joshua son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly Saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. You see, there's nothing surprising about, you know, there's nothing shocking about Rahab being a prostitute. Because that's like, not. I mean, that's not even very far in terms of where you could be in their culture. I mean, there's no shame in that. At all. In verse 2 it says, It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, saying, Men from the sons of Israel have come tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the women had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. That's pretty cool scene, you know. So you know, Rahab protects you know these the spies. you know, in order to do so, she needs to lie. You know, to the king, and you know, here we come to this. You know, you know, another one of those questions, like, well, you know, did she sin when she, you know, lied about, you know, where, you know, the spies, you know, were, and 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 that's a good, you know, that's a good question because, like, we know lying is wrong. We know giving people up to be murdered is also wrong. Okay, and that. There, you know, this is one of those places where... You know that phrase where people say, like... Well, you know, I mean, all sins are the same. And that's, like, a little bit true, but not really. That's one of those things. Okay? Because it's true in that all sin separates us from God. All sin, you know, is worthy to be to be judged. But not, not all sin is the same. Like, there's a difference between... Um, well, a kid taking a cookie, that's a simple thing. If they're told not to take cookie, they take a cookie. That's a simple thing. It's not the same in, in God's eyes or in our moral dealings as murder. It's just not. You know, it's just, it just isn't. And we know that clearly because the punishments that God gave for different things were different according to the level of the sin. You know, because so, so t- sometimes people want to use that as like a justification. You know, of something like really bad. Like, well, I mean, you know, I mean, all sins of the same. You know, and, and it's one of those things that sounds nice in some ways. I don't know really how it sounds nice. It Doesn't sound nice to me. But that's you know, it, it's one of those things that just shows that a lot of times we aren't we aren't thinking. We aren't thinking. We're just taking like what's on the bulletin board and going, oh, okay. We 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 think. What do you think? Does actually the scripture teach that? Now I would actually argue that in, in this case, yes, she was, you know, deceitful in what she told them. But her, the heart, of it is not a lie. Because understand this, the purpose this and what God cares about so much is is heart and intention. The heart of a lie is to deceive someone for one's own good at the expense of another. Like, I'm going to benefit. So that's where like, people are like, selling a car, selling a used car. Hey, are there any problems with this car? Nah. I mean, knowing the transmission is like moments away from just going. That, that's a lie with the, the... The reason that that is so wrong is because it's the intent to benefit from it, to have a personal gain. She here, you know, does deceive the king, but she does so for the well-being of these two men that they aren't, you know, slaughtered. So it's a different ballgame entirely because the motivation, the heart of it, are all different. And so now I, now what we, what we can afford to do is to use a story like this and then justify, you know, lies that benefit us and pretend like we're not doing it to benefit us. You know, don't get it twisted. God knows our hearts and nothing, um, he, you know, he knows every intention, right? So you're not going to get away with something for, from God. But you know, the sin would have been if she had said, oh yeah, they're in my house. Come and kill them. That would have been the sin. Alright. So then, what do we read? They're pursued, but they're not there. And she says this in verse 8. Now before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For if we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, I came out of Egypt. And what you did to the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household, and give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. That's an amazing scene. She knows the truth, but there's a contrast here. Because she knows the truth. She knows that you know, everybody is fearful that the, you know, that the Hebrews are coming and what's going to happen. But she acknowledges, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven, above and on earth below she acknowledges the deeper reality. See, the people were just acknowledging that, hey, these people are coming, and they've already had victories, and we're, this isn't going to be good for us. But with them, there's no acknowledging that God is God, and there's no repentance. Now, because just like with Nineveh, when, when Jonah was sent to Nineveh, and the message was simply, your sins have come before God, and they were great, just like the Canaanites, And you're going to be destroyed. And what do the people do? They put on sackcloth and ashes. They wept. They fasted before God. And they begged for mercy and forgiveness. And they received it. So make no mistake about it. There is opportunity for the the Canaanites here have options. Don't, Don't get it twisted to think that they didn't have options. Because they had an option to repent of their wickedness. They also had an option to flee. They had an option to leave the the land and to acknowledge that it would be better for them to move out than to be destroyed. They had options. But in the stubbornness and in the hardness of their heart, at Jericho, it's only Rahab and her family that ask for protection. You don't see the leaders of Jericho send out any envoy and ask for terms of peace. You don't ask for. You don't see them asking, saying, "Hey, we can. We understand this is the just reward for what we, are, the wickedness that we have committed for hundreds of years." Now, I understand that's a big ask because show me a nation that acknowledges its wickedness. Show me a nation that apologizes for the sins that is committed. It's a really rare thing. It hardly ever happens. When it happens, like take note. It's astounding. Because the hearts of humans are prideful, and we always want to justify ourselves and our forefathers. And that's a problem before God. Because God cares more about truth and justice than he does about the reputation of our ancestors. And guess what? I don't care who you are. You know, we've been on this planet a long time. So if you, got, if you go back far enough, you're going to find some of your ancestors did some good things and some of your ancestors did some really evil things. So the reality of it is we just don't know most of the stories. And I really know that because we all have the same first parents. So we all obviously have some commonalities on some who did good and some who did evil. But, you know, even if you went back down the line, if we just said, hey, we're going to go back down the line 500 years. Well, some of your ancestors would probably be of noble character and some of them would be exceedingly wicked. That's just reality. That's true in my family line. That's true in your family line. It doesn't really, regardless of where your family line came from. Now, sometimes we don't like to hear that because we want to be the good guys. And especially in our culture where we've set it up to where we're always the good guys, that, that, that becomes difficult to hear. How about just acknowledging what, is, what God says? There aren't any good guys. aside from him, aside from being in relationship with him, and having lives ultimately changed by him, there aren't any good guys. There's just like rebellious and, and wicked and exceedingly, exceedingly wicked. Like where you are on that spectrum. I mean, if you look back at any of my forefathers, anyone that didn't know the Lord, the best that could be said about them, rebellious against the ways of God. And then it just kind of goes downhill from there. That's reality. We don't like to... A lot of times we don't like to deal in reality because reality isn't pretty. Reality a lot of times is really ugly. So we just like to pretend we're the good guys. We've always been the good guys. Not so much. And that's true of any ethnicity, any people. Now some worse than others. Some cultures worse than other cultures in terms of, like the Canaanites, how they exceeded in their depravity. But she here, Rahab, in her great faith and understanding, acknowledges, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth below. And she asks for mercy. And she asks to be spared. And verse 14, So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you um, do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us a land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then we see in the following verses she lets down a rope through the window. Um, Her house was connected to the city wall, and so um, she sends them down. Um, They hid themselves for three days. And then the pursuers stopped pursuing them and they went back to their camp. It said the men said to her before they had left, though they said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, with which you made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And so they had, you know, a very clear and defined thing that would happen. And then in the following chapters, we see the, the Hebrews cross the Jordan River. Uh, one thing they see that's really cool there, as you can go back and read, is that they set up 12 stones, one representing each tribe of Israel, and put it in the river. And then on the, when they had crossed over and made camp, they put another, another 12 stones in a pile. And they said, you know, what, the reason that they put that there is so they could come back with their descendants to those stones and say, remember what God did for us here how we passed over on dry land. Now, if you go to Israel today, certain parts of the Jordan River are shallow and not very far across, and yeah, you would get your feet wet, but, I mean, up to maybe your knee, sort of thing. Um, Because of the water usage and changes over time, that river has shrunk a lot. It wasn't little, so if you go, you're going to be like, I don't really get the big deal about crossing this <laughs> this thing, you know, and that's my wife and I experienced that a number of months ago. We're like, okay, we're at the Jordan River and um, okay, I don't really see the big deal. <laughs> okay. But it was it was bigger, it was much bigger, much larger than the Move of the Whole People was certainly a miraculous thing. So they surround the city city each day. You know They march around it one time on the seventh day. Seven times the walls collapse and Rahab and her family are spared. And you see there the graciousness and the mercy of God. But it doesn't end there. It gets better. Because what we read in Matthew chapter 1, when you're talking about the human genealogy of Jesus Christ, you read this. Salmon, and I'm just picking up partway through, Now, read the whole thing. Salmon was the father of Boaz, verse 5, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. So, the great-grandmother of King David is Rahab. You see how God's mercy and grace are just exceedingly abundant. That this person, who you know was swept up in their culture of sin and was participating fully, you know, maybe not to, obviously to the degree, some degree of others, but she was well insteeped into this this depraved culture. And yet, when she acknowledges who God really is. When she gives her life over to the true and living God, he changes everything. And he doesn't just forgive her, but She he gives her a place, and a permanent place in the historical record of the genealogy on the human side, the human genealogy of Jesus Christ. As Jesus fulfills the prophecy that he comes to sit eternally on the throne of King David. It's just amazing it's just amazing, and so you know Rahab becomes this this key character in the promise that God made to Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed, this Canaanite woman, not a hebrew, canaanite it's powerful it's beautiful, and it just one another one of those things to show that what God is concerned about from Genesis to Revelation is spiritual reality, is faith, is being in right relationship with Him, and He's not a respecter of persons. As Paul says, you know, he, he accepts people from any place, from any people. That's the record from Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation, we see around the, tribe, the throne of God, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Like this story is big enough, God is big enough for you know, all the peoples of our planet even in, an, in a time, in a place, in an ethnicity where the people are exceedingly wicked, God can still save and make part of his plan and work in this world. That's exceedingly hopeful to give us exceeding hope in our world. Because here's the problem with us today is, man, we go, man, these Canaanites were wicked. And yeah, they were. And does our wickedness, is it like on their level? Well, think deeply about that. Think deeply about that. Don't just assume, oh, those were the bad guys and were the, you know, our culture's the good guys. Think deeply about what our culture accepts and promotes and what is common. What things that God says he hates that in our culture are just things that are accepted or laughed about. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 and 10 listen to this it says but God shows us His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. It's like, do we understand that before we came to believe in Jesus, we were... We were enemies of God. But we're reconciled how? It's by God's grace. It's what Jesus did for us at the cross that we've been justified by His blood. That means you know, we've been justified by the payment that He made at the cross for our sins. We've been justified. So if while we were enemies, we will be reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So what that means is, the fact that Jesus died for us and paid our price gives us life. The fact that he's risen from the dead and that he's alive, we don't just receive you know, life and forgiveness, but we receive abundant life and joy and purpose and part of God's plan and story and part of you know, being a blessing in our world. Like we receive so much more. We're like Rahab, who got more than forgiveness. She got to be a part of God's work and plan in the world. She got more than forgiveness. And so, what God offers us is purpose in Him, significance in Him, good things to do, good work to do in Him and His name for His glory and honor, to be a blessing like Abraham, not just to receive a blessing but to be a channel, and avenue of blessing in the lives of other people. That's what God has done for us. So what does you know, what's, what's something like that look like today? And, and as I say this, I want to say, just preface it with all glory to God in this. Again, because those of us who know Jesus, again, we were like, we're like Abraham who God called out and said, you know, you've got an opportunity. We're like Rahab, who were enemies of God and you know part of a depraved culture and you know, don't deserve anything and yet we receive forgiveness and then so much more. So we can't take glory in that and who we are and what we've done. no God gets the glory in it. but we have the privilege to get to participate in him in second Corinthians chapter five, it talks about this reconciliation and it says, you know that we get to basically, be part of reconciling others to God. Like, that's our great privilege. So, I guess about 14, 15 months ago, um, we were, we had, we had a house that we lived in, we had rented it out for a while, and it was, you know, time to sell it, and so we were Making it nicer than any time we had lived there, um, <laughs> kind of what kind of what people do when they go to sell a house. It's like, well, let's make it nicer than we've ever had it, and then we'll sell it. And so that's what we do. So we have these countertops, um, you know, put in, and these guys that come to do the work. Um, particularly Augustine and Jose um, are there, and and a couple of guys, and and afterwards, Eduardo's there doing some some work with me, and we're like, hey, let's go. You know, it was like kind of later on a Friday night, and we're like, let's go get some tacos. Let's go get some tacos and, and hang out, right? So we go to Cali and Tito's on the east side, and we have, you know, some fish tacos, you know, with them and conversation about life and what their lives are like and where they're at. And um, got to share, you know, God's, you know, message with them and um, the good news of Jesus. And then, you know, that was kind of that. Was kinda that. And there wasn't, like, any great response, you know, to it. It was just kind of like, all right, that's cool, you know, know, sort of thing. Um, And so now, 14 months later, uh, Claire and I are bringing our kitchen into this millennium. If you've you've been in our house before, you know what we mean by that, because it was, you know, from a long time ago, probably 60s, but yeah, 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 a long time ago. So bring it into this millennium. Not in a cool way, yeah. Not, not in a retro cool way, kind of just in the like, eh, it's kind of not nice way. Um, so renovating that, and um, so same Augustine and Jose and, and their cousin Victor uh came with them and um, do countertops. And and so Eduardo and I, again, it's Friday night, it's kind of <laughs> l- later on, we're like hey, you want to go get some tacos again, right? So they had been actually looking forward, we had talked to them before, they had been looking forward to going back to Cali and Tito's and have more tacos. So we go, and it's like, I don't know, by the time we get there, it's like 9, 9.30, something like that. Well, long conversation, and they were just so open to the Word of God that at about midnight in the parking lot at Cali and Tito's, these three guys put their trust in Jesus. That's awesome. But you know it's about opportunity. And and this is what I want to say with this as part of the yeah, hard not to get emotional about that, but um but why not just get emotional? Like (laughs) why suppress that, right? Um so You know, when I think back to 14 months ago, there wasn't time. You know, we're we're trying to get this house fixed and ready to sell because we're gonna go spend the month of July in in Mexico with church there. And those hours, like, don't exist. They don't exist. Like, in terms of, like, is that a good decision to take those hours and to do that or to keep working? Because you basically just need to work every moment you're awake in order to have this done, in order to be ready in time to go. And because of that, like, other people, I mean, and other reasons, but not just that, but, you know, every person who came over that had any sort of the work to do, we tried to share, you know, the, the gospel with them. You know, And I'd usually call somebody else, I'd, you know, Eduardo, um, Abdiel was here visiting for a while, like, whoever was coming to share... Hey, here's my friend. You know, let them share their story with you. And they'd share their testimony. And we shared Jesus with them. And we took, you know, many hours over the course of that project to do that. And and what that meant is that, you know, people like Megan and Jessica and the Pepins and others, while we're in Mexico, are having to finish up the work. And Derek and Tara and whoever else, but um, Eduardo Vanessa Marcus, or lots of people in the church. You know, having to come over and finish, you know, last little things and, and clean and, and do other stuff. But it was important to show that hospitality and to keep first things first. Gospel has to be first. And everybody had to pay a price for that. But but guess what? Because it, because everybody that paid a price in that, everybody who paid a price in that gets like it, it's part of that story and it's part of that reward. So again, it's perspective and how you, you view all of, all of that and those, and those opportunities. And what I'm going to say is like that God's always going to make a way. And sometimes, yeah, it costs us and it costs others to sacrifice. But there's always time to share the gospel. There's always time to show, to show love and hospitality. There's always time to, to do the things that really, really are important in our lives and in our mission with Jesus. So again, let's not get it messed up in our heads that oh, I'm too busy; I don't have time to share with somebody. Now, God's going to provide and make a way, right? And so we got that privilege and that opportunity, you know, with with them. And you know, and Eduardo was was bold. You know, at the end of the conversation, he he had shared his testimony, and he's like, you know, just how I got you know, ask, hey, are you ready to, you know, p- put your faith in Jesus? You know, I was like, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys that same question. Are you, you know, you, you guys ready to pray? And they were like, yeah. And then we were both kind of like, wait, okay, no, we're not talking about just like praying, like, you know, we're just going to thank God for lives. We're like, we're talking about like, you know, we're say, Lord, we're sorry for our sins and like, you know, believe in, in, in Jesus, died for us, like, like that, like you're ready to do that, you know, because... We we're a little bit surprised that uh, they were all like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," do you know. You know and you yeah, it's like, yeah, "Do you know what you're signing up for?" Exactly. And so they're like, "Yes, we're, I'm ready, ready." And so just you know, be encouraged by that, and just man, we have we have it so good. We have it so good because we have such a good God who is gracious. And what I get excited about. Is if those three guys you know? I mean, if that's a genuine faith, and if they if they just you know do the simple things of reading their Bible and and praying and being part of a you know they're in Atlanta they're part of a good local church, they just do this and 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 share their faith like like how God is going to use those lives to then be a blessing to others. Because when God calls you and when he when he blesses you, we, we receive his salvation like he does that for you but it's not just for you you see that throughout the scriptures God never blesses anybody for it just to end with them he's not like that that's not his way that's not his economy so when he blesses you he does so so that you share it and you give it with other people because he's given us the ministry of reconciliation what does our world need? Reconciliation between people and God and people and people. He's given us that ministry of reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. that Though it's a difficult message, a difficult subject that we've looked at uh, this morning with your judgment. God, we would be um, nothing without you. We wouldn't even exist. Thank you that you weren't waiting for us to become good people. But when we were your enemies, you provided your son, Jesus, to come and to pay for our sins. And that the grave couldn't hold him, that we have a risen Savior. And so that we get not just forgiveness, but we get a life and a a mission, a purpose so bigger, so much bigger than ourselves. And Lord, that you would use our lives to be a blessing to others. We thank you, Jesus, because you did that out of your love for us. As we take that bread and that cup this morning, we just want to say thank you. We praise your holy and precious name. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I don't hit this because it's in that same passage I can't believe I, I skipped it but before the walls of Jericho fall Joshua's there near Jericho and there's one that comes who has a sword in his arm in his hand and now Joshua's a brave dude because here's this woman come with swords in Joshua's a brave dude he comes and says are you are you for us or against us and the answer is, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And Joshua gets on his face and worships. And he says, you know, the place that he is on is, is holy ground. Because what happened there? Well, that phrase is, you know, when he says he's the captain of the Lord's armies, this is... This is what we call a Christophany, which is a big theological word. It basically just means, you know, it's appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. You see, because again, as we've talked about when we've gone through, you know, you know the, uh, our, our study of Matthew, and as we've done our study of Revelation, like, you see Jesus offering all his mercy, but, like, don't, don't get it messed up. Like, he's, he's a warrior, and he offers us peace, but it's on his terms. It's on his terms. And he doesn't work for Joshua. He says, Are you for us or against, you know, are you for us or for our enemies? He says, doesn't work for Joshua and the Hebrews. He doesn't work for the Canaanites. And there was, no, he's got his own army and his own way and his own justice. And so that's why he's willing to judge the Canaanites then. And he's. He'll judge the Hebrews later, and he'll judge all nations one day. So he's the king, but he's the only king that comes and dies. In his offering of his terms of peace, he offers himself as the sacrifice of the peace. No other king does that. That's what makes him different. But he's powerful. Let's not forget it.